Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I am Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So we mentioned in our recent episode on Maria Talchief that I had been looking for some Native American history to do for the podcast. It had been a while since we had talked about any Native American history. And in that looking around process, I stumbled across an article on Cahokia, which is the Mississippian city that was, in the words of UNESCO, the largest and earliest pre-Columbian city north of Mexico. So uh, naturally, I got really excited. But I found almost instantly two problems <laughs> with doing an episode <laughs> on Cahokia. One is that Sarah and Dublina did one already in 2011. Uh, and the other is that there is some debate about whether we should really call Cahokia America's first city. And one of the reasons for that debate is the subject of today's episode, um, which is Poverty Point. And so to get this out of the way right at the beginning, Poverty Point is named for a 19th century plantation in the area. The name has nothing to do at all with the native people who live there or their culture or the site itself. Uh, it's just sort of wound up with that name over the years. And occasionally they talk about changing the name to something that's more appropriate for what is actually being studied there. Uh, but that's where we are. So Poverty Point has a few things in common with Cahokia. They're both situated in the Mississippi River Valley. Uh, Cahokia is a lot farther north and also much closer to the river. So Cahokia is in what's now Illinois, across the Mississippi River from St. Louis, Missouri. 
and Poverty Point is in the northeast corner of Louisiana, adjacent to Bayou Mason. And both of them are known for their earthworks. Those are large mounds that were created by moving baskets of soil from one place to another. But Poverty Point is much, much older than Cahokia. And it's also less clear exactly how people used the site at Poverty Point. Uh, but some things about it are really unique among Native American sites. So that is what we are going to talk about today. So Poverty Point, as Tracy uh, just mentioned, is a collection of earthwork mounds and ridges situated next to Bayou Maison. These were built between 3,600 and 3,100 years ago during North America's archaic period. And some of the site's earthworks were built over generations, whereas others were built by a large group of laborers over a short period of time. They also incorporate some of the mound structures and measurement techniques of older civilizations that actually lived in the area before the arrival of the Poverty Point culture. It's estimated that it took about 5 million hours of labor to build all of Poverty Point's earthworks. This required people to move 53 million cubic feet of soil, which would have been carried from one place to another in baskets that would have weighed about 50 pounds apiece when full. The site has six ridges, which are divided by five roads into six sections, as well as six mounds. The ridges form a pattern of concentric seas, which are only visible from the air. They're taller than a grown adult, and their peaks are between 50 and 90 paces apart. The longest of the ridges is three-quarters of a mile long. Between the ridges are troughs, where at least some of the dirt came from that built them. These ridges curve away from a bend in the bayou, and they end at the bluff that drops down to the bayou. It's a pretty steep drop. The aisles that divide the ridges into sections were made either by digging trenches through some of the spots or by leaving gaps during their construction in others. And these uh, these sort of paths lead out from a central plaza like spokes from a hub. The central plaza is circular and it's flat and it's marked with a lot of post holes of varying sizes, although nobody has really worked out if there's a pattern to them or not. It was probably used as a gathering place as well as for ceremonial purposes. In addition to the ridges and the plaza, there are six mounds at the site. And it's not completely clear what they were all used for. But unlike many of the other mounds in North America, they were not used for burials. Based on the artifacts left behind, some of them probably did have more religious or uh, or spiritual ceremonial purposes, though. The area's first occupants, at least during the period that we're going to discuss, uh, probably lived at Mound B. This is a mound that was created, used for a while, and then covered over with a new top, and this happened repeatedly. A final cap of earth was placed over the mound about 3,400 years ago, after which point the mound appears not to have been used anymore. Poverty Point's ridges were started at about the same time as Mound B was capped off. The largest of the mounds, known as Mound A, was built last. And it was built in what was, at the time, basically a swamp. But about 3,300 years ago, people started burning off all the vegetation and burying what was left under a layer of silt. And then the mound is built on top of that silt layer. And Mound A is 22 meters high at its highest point. So that's about 72 feet, or roughly seven stories. 
At its longest, it's about 210 meters long, or 689 feet. Mound A is shaped roughly like a T, and some archaeologists believe it was meant to be representative of a bird. It would have taken more than 10 million baskets of earth to make that mound, and you have to be more than 1,000 feet in the air to actually see it all. All of these numbers sound just huge, and they really are. Mound T alone contains almost 240,000 cubic meters of Earth. And the only earthworks in the eastern United States that that's larger than Mound A is Monk's Mound in Cahokia, which you can hear about in Sarah and Dublina's old episode. Mound A is more than twice as big as the next biggest uh, mound that was built at about the same time. And it's 50 times bigger than the average earthworks from the period. What makes this even more stunning is that based on how the bottom layers of Earth in Mound A settled, it's likely that it was built really quickly, especially compared to the others, which took generations. Based on an estimate of 90 days to build it, the labor force needed to build Mound A was more than 1,000 people. Logically, the laborers would have had children and people on the site who were doing other work besides the building. So the overall population there for that estimated 90 days was maybe roughly 4,000. There's no sign of homes on Mound A. People didn't live on it. And it's generally thought to have been more ceremonial. It's definitely possible that the entire complex had religious or magical significance given the way different parts of it line up with one another and the repetitions of the number six uh, and a lot of the various artifacts um, that uh, that people have found around the site. And those are what we are going to talk about after a brief word from a sponsor. That sounds like a capital idea. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on... 
the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So to get back to Poverty Point, people have found all kinds of artifacts at Poverty Point. The first mention of the place in writing is from the 1830s, and this is when a settler had heard that there was lead in the area, and he went looking for a lead mine. He was thinking he was going to open up the mine, mine a bunch of lead. That was how he was going to make his fortune. What he actually found was, in his words, an Indian village, and there were artifacts scattered all over the ground. And this lead was really galena, which is a type of lead ore, and that had been shaped into adornments. Uh, so there was no mine there. He was extremely disappointed. When the first real archaeological study of Poverty Point started in 1912, people found an abundance of artifacts. The overwhelming majority of them were on the ground, with many more just under the surface. Local people had also been finding and collecting these artifacts, some of which have now been turned over for study. The most common object found at Poverty Point has been named the Poverty Point Object. And these are baked earthenware balls that were used as cooking stones. And there's all kinds of variety in exactly how Poverty Point objects are shaped and in what kind of designs were etched onto them before they were baked and hardened. But they fall into three main categories, which are balls, ropes, and bicones. So to use them, uh, people would heat these objects in a fire, and then they would transfer them into earthen ovens for cooking. Different shapes and sizes of the balls definitely hold heat at different temperatures and for different lengths of time. So this was most likely used deliberately to control the time and temperature of cooking. Also in the realm of cooking, there is some pottery at Poverty Point, but overwhelmingly the vessels there are made from stone. One cache of broken vessels at the site contained almost 3,000 pieces, which probably came from between 200 and 300 stone vessels. So shifting away from the cooking and edibles arena, next up we're going to talk about weapons and their parts. There are lots of projectile points and darts made from stone. Darts and spears were thrown using a tool called an atlatl. There are also lots of stone weights to give the atlatl more heft so the projectiles would go farther. 
Uh, also in the category of weights, Poverty Point is full of plummets, and these are stones that were carved into drop-like shapes, which were used as weights on fishing nets. There are also tools all over Poverty Point. So we're talking about axes, adzes, drills, and the like. And a lot of these are stone tools made for working with stone, both to make more tools and to shape stone into more ceremonial and ornamental objects. Uh, these objects include beads, a lot of little pot-bellied owl figurines, which are my favorite. They're they're very uh, charming. They're super charming. <laughs> um, there are human figurines, which are mostly kind of androgynous. There are also tubes that are made of a substance called less, as well as ones made from stone. It's not completely clear whether these were used as pipes for smoking things or whether they were used in ceremonies in some way, uh, but there are a number of them from around the site. We have talked about stone so much already in this podcast. Uh, and in addition to all these tools, weapons, vessels, and ornaments, there's also stone along the tops of the ridges, more than 70 metric tons of it. But here's the thing. There's literally no natural stone existing at Poverty Point. To find stone locally, people at Poverty Point would have had to travel at least 50 kilometers, and that would have been a two-day trip, even if people had been traveling along the water at that point. Between half and three-quarters of the stone at Poverty Point actually isn't local. It's from way more than 50 kilometers away. A big portion of it is from more than a 1,000 kilometers away. And that might have you scratching your head if this is the first you've heard of it. It is one of those revelations that will give pause. And we're going to talk about how that all uh, came to be after our own pause for a quick word from a sponsor. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market. 
as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So to return to all the stone at Poverty Point, all these axes and adornments and atlatl weights and all of all of this stuff, they were made from stone and other materials that was not uh, native to the Poverty Point site. All these various types of stone and flint and ore that were used to craft things at Poverty Point came from all over the Mississippi River Valley, all the way up to the Great Lakes. And some of the sources for stone and ore were from much farther east and west. The cache of vessel fragments we mentioned earlier came mostly from the Appalachian Mountains. They also got soapstone from what's now Georgia and quartzite from what's now Alabama. At the same time, the goods that were made at Poverty Point made their way out into the rest of the Mississippi River Valley and the southeast as well. Poverty Point objects are found in archaeological sites all over this region. There are also six different styles of weapon points and knives found at Poverty Point. These are also distributed around the surrounding area at various archaeological sites. But unlike at Poverty Point, these sites tend to have just one or two styles, not the the vast array. All of this collected together points to the idea that Poverty Point was a gathering place for lots of people and a vibrantly active trading ground. People brought stone and lots of it from very far away and then returned to where they had came from with, uh, with items from Poverty Point. It's entirely possible that food was also part of Poverty Point's trade, but that's a little bit more difficult to document. They definitely had an abundance of fish, deer, and nuts to hunt and gather, and we do know that these foods were staples in the diet at Poverty Point itself. Yeah, it's a lot harder to track whether somebody got some fish and took it back with them and then ate it. (laughs) Yeah, not... Not as easy to maintain those historical records. So here's where things really move into the we're not sure territory at Poverty Point. We know lots of people came to the site to trade, but there's this clear documentation in in the archaeological record of massive amounts of trading from very far away. But we're really not sure how many people, if any, lived there permanently. For example, archaeologists suspect that people lived along the ridges, but no archaeological evidence has turned up yet for homes there. 
It's entirely possible that homes were made from materials that decayed over time and the site was repeatedly plowed and used for farming for at least a century. So that could have easily destroyed some evidence. Even so, the the presence of zero evidence of houses is a bit of a head scratcher. Uh, The idea that people lived along the ridges comes from the presence of middens, basically trash deposits along the slopes of the ridges, along with the type and number of artifacts that are found along the ridges themselves. There's also no evidence of any burials at Poverty Point, which is something you would expect if people were living there uh, full time. The only exception is that Mound B was built over the remains of a fire, and at least one body had been burned in that fire. But it's not entirely clear who that person was or when it happened or how that was related to other events at Poverty Point. Basically, there is too much trash on the site for it to have just been a seasonal trading ground that would have been left vacant for long stretches of the year. And the lack of burial sites makes it unlikely that it was a year-round home for as many people as the size of the site would be able to support. So it remains a bit of a mystery. These two things kind of leave a lot of question marks. It seems like maybe there are some people who were there all the time and uh, uh, many, many others who came to trade. But there's a lot of theory and not a lot of clear evidence for which might be the right one. It's also a bit of a mystery exactly who these people were. There's not a specific known Native American tribe that's been tied to the construction of the mounds at Poverty Point uh, or to all of the things that went on there. Instead, archaeologists have come up with a set of hallmarks that they use to define what's called Poverty Point culture. And this includes Poverty Point objects, projectile points and knives, lots of raw materials being used from really far away, uh, creating of beads and plummets, and an overall hunter-gatherer type of existence, especially uh, relying on fish, deer, and nuts. And so this culture stretched roughly from Memphis to the Gulf of Mexico along the Mississippi River Valley. However, some of these hallmarks, uh, such as the Poverty Point objects, travel well and they last a very long time. So it's important not to just suppose that every hunter-gatherer society that hunted with projectiles and used Poverty Point objects was necessarily part of Poverty Point culture. And the last kind of mind-blowing thing, uh, I feel like there are many mind-blowing things, or at least things that blew my mind in this episode, Um Archaeologists used to think that because of the huge complexity and engineering scale of the mounds and ridges, and because of all that non-local sourcing of the stone that they needed, that the Poverty Point people must have been an agricultural society. Sort of, the society would have had to develop to the point of being able to sustain agriculture before being able to do all of these other things. But more recent research really undoes that idea. We just don't have the archaeological evidence of agriculture going on at the site. And the amount of labor and time that it would have taken to raise all of these mounds couldn't really have happened if this, uh, you know, the same or more amount of labor was also required to raise crops and take care of domestic animals. So basically, uh, based on the evidence we have, and contrary to what people supposed about what hunter-gatherer societies were capable of doing, The people at Poverty Point were hunter-gatherers who built these massively large and complex engineering feats, which are actually unique in the Native American world. There's no other ridge structure like the one at Poverty Point that's been found anywhere else. 
They also appear to have been a really egalitarian culture. So they shared their labor and their resources. Even though the site where they lived was the biggest in the region, they don't seem to have been wealthier than the surrounding communities. There doesn't even appear to have been any kind of wealth disparity among the people who lived in or visited Poverty Point. There has to have been some kind of leadership or at least management uh, because that would have been necessary to plan and manage all of the building of these ridges and mounds, especially the ones that went, the construction went on for years and years. Um, but we have no textiles surviving from the site and definitely no written records. So all of that goes back into the realm of theory and conclusions drawn from the archaeological evidence that we have. In addition to all these other question marks about some of the specifics of the the peoples and the life at Poverty Point, we also don't know why people eventually left Poverty Point. One possible explanation is that when Poverty Point was in use, there may have been a lake adjacent to the site, which was used for fishing. Uh, we know that fish are definitely abundant in those parts of the waterways and that they were a dietary staple. So if the lake had dried up, there would not have been enough to f- feed anybody anymore, uh, and that could have caused them to exit. The state of Louisiana bought 400 acres of the site in 1972. I'm sure when we put this uh, on our Facebook page, someone will put the aliens guy from the History Channel show yes. on there. Um, <laughs> yes, indeed. Because there's just a whole lot of, this was a massively impressive archaeological feat, and we are not sure exactly who built it or why. Aliens. Yep. I I don't actually think it was aliens. I always think it's really cool when uh, researchers have an idea in their minds about how a society functioned, and then they find something that undoes that whole idea. Like, you know, societies must have progressed to being able to farm things agriculturally before they are sophisticated enough to do these other things. Oh, actually, no. <laughs> that seems not to be the case. This- this brings back um, such fond memories of when I was a kid in school and I grew up uh, part of the time in northwest Florida and we visited uh, an Indian mound as one of our field trips. Yes, we had. Uh, but it was nothing compared no, to this. No, we had, we had a mound where we visited near where I grew up that was called uh, Town Creek Indian Mound. And that is still what it is called today because I looked it up. Uh, and that is a place that some of the mounds were used as burial sites. And then near-ish to Atlanta is uh, Etowah Mounds, which I think also some of them were used as burial sites. So having had these enorm- enormous mounds that were not burial sites was another thing Um it was sort of foreign to me and this whole idea, along with the idea of living somewhere where there's no stone. Everywhere I have ever lived is very rocky and so... <laughs> I was like, what do you mean there is no stone in this Stone Age society's home? It does uh, sort of cause you to have to shift your thinking about how that could exist and be a thing. Yeah. Because I, like you, I'm like, what? 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 <laughs> no stone at all? Are you sure? Can that happen? I kept wondering if it was hyperbole, but, you know, all of these <laughs> respectable archaeologists were saying over and over that there was no stone. They would have had to go 50 kilometers to get stone. Really? Okay. So uh, I also have some listener mail. We got several listener mail slash tweets slash Facebook messages after our series on China under Chairman Mao um, of people asking uh, 
how people in China now think about these events or uh, more personal stories about um, what people experienced who were living in China at the time. And we have gotten other listener mail that answers some of those questions. So I'm going to read uh, from one of them today, and this is from Coco. Um, and Coco says, most of my knowledge of the Cultural Revolution comes from my parents who were born in the 50s. I grew up in China during the 90s. And while the Cultural Revolution was in the textbooks, all the blame were placed on the Gang of Four. My dad's father was imprisoned during that time. I don't know the details because it's still a very sensitive topic with my dad. He was horribly bullied as a child because his father was a counter-revolutionary. From what I've been able to gather, my grandfather worked as a professor. Together with some of his colleagues, he, he participated in the 100 Flowers campaign and was subsequently labeled a rightist and counter-revolutionary. According to my grandmother, one of his students was also imprisoned at the same place. The student later died in prison of a possible suicide. About the 100 Flowers campaign, there are a few Chinese articles that mention my grandfather. And according to one of them, the campaign was really a trap to lure dissenters into exposing themselves. Given how things turned out, I'm inclined to believe in this conspiracy theory this one time. My grandmother also told me stories of the famine. Still, there were times when the food shortage was so bad that people resorted to eating tree barks. The university that my grandmother worked at had a lot of trees along its streets, and I think during one winter when food was particularly scarce, people would stripe one type of tree in particular because its barks tasted the least bitter. My mother's family had a slightly easier time during the Cultural Revolution. They lived in the South where there was more food. They also lived in a more rural area where they had a small plot of land where they planted food. They were also more well-off to begin with. In how the Cultural Revolution is viewed, there does seem to be an urban-slash-rural divide. Since people most likely to write about history in China are the urbanite intellectuals, the general impression is overwhelmingly negative. However, I have Chinese friends with parents from rural areas who tend to have much rosier views of the events. One of my parents' friends was sent to the countryside as an educated youth and became an elementary school teacher while he was there. He said that without the the down-to-the-countryside movement, the children in the rural areas during that time would have had a much worse education, simply because without the government mandate, educated young people would not be in the countryside teaching first graders. I do have the Cultural Revolution to thank for my existence, though. My parents met while they were in university. My dad's three years older than my mom, and the reason they went to the university at the same time was that because during the Cultural Revolution, post-secondary education was inaccessible for most people. They basically both took their exams in the same year, even though he was older than she was, and that's how they wound up in school together. And one last thing. I have a pet theory that the current brain drain that China is experiencing, where many highly educated or wealthy Chinese are emigrating, is at least in part a legacy of the Cultural Revolution. From my own very formal and very unscientific survey of my Chinese-Canadian friends, The majority of us come from families that are of the five black categories. I think many of us emigrated not just for the usual reasons, seeking a better life, etc., but also because even though we did have a good life in China, we don't trust that it'll last. Um, So thank you, Coco, for sending us that personal story about uh, how the Cultural Revolution affected your family. We got several of those, um, and I'm kind of spreading them out. to read them. There are some others that I hope to read one day, but the, uh, a lot of them are very tragic, and so I don't want to lump them all together. If you would like to write to us, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. 
Our Tumblr is mistinhistory.tumblr.com and are on Pinterest at pinterest.com slash mistinhistory. We have a Spreadshirt store at mistinhistory.spreadshirt.com where you can get all kinds of hoodies and t-shirts and phone cases and things. Um, and if you would like to learn more about what we've talked about today, you can come to our website or our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com and put the word pottery in the search bar and you will find some information about pottery, including the history of pottery, uh, which ties into what we've talked about today a little bit. And you can come to our website where you can find all of our episodes, including a handy archive of all of them back to the beginning and show notes for all the episodes. That is at MissedInHistory.com. So, you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com and MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.